Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Those are the words of Psalm 19, verse 14, and how sweet it is to, in fact, have that as the sole plea that would fill your life and mine, to let the words of our heart, the meditation of our mind, be only that which is pleasing and acceptable to God. We are honored, of course, that God has allowed us to come together and assemble in this way at this time. And it's our trust that these songs have been so encouraging and uplifting. And if you have your Bible there handy, keep it open to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 as we look at a few of the thoughts about seeing what is invisible. That's the title I've given to the lesson tonight. And perhaps these introductory thoughts would prompt you to consider what it is I'd like you to, to consider with me. Isn't it fascinating to give thought to the blessing of eyesight? I'm sure all of us on our finer moments reflect often on what a sweet blessing it is to be able to see. Maybe you've known someone with very poor eyesight, perhaps even someone that's physically blind, and yet you imagine what it would be like to be in that person's shoes, to be in that person's situation. Especially, doesn't that give us a thought of just how great a blessing to be able to see is? You'll notice at the top of that slide, the Bible even tells us that it's God that made the hearing ear and the seeing eye in Proverbs chapter 20. It's He that fascinated and formed and orchestrated the design by which that's possible. Have you ever thought about superheroes? Maybe you remember Superman. He had x-ray vision, didn't he? He could see through structures and see things that to a normal person you wouldn't be able to see. I'd like to submit to you, though, that Superman has nothing on a Christian. You and I have by far the finest vision imaginable because we can see what's even invisible. Think about that tonight for the next few minutes. What's it like to see what's invisible? And yet every one of us, within the sound of my voice, all of us that are Christians, you and I have the finest vision because we can see what's invisible. Let's study tonight about that. What's it mean and what does the Bible present to us about seeing what's invisible? I've asked you to consider the definition at the bottom. The word invisible literally means that which is incapable of being seen. It has to do with that which is inaccessible to view. And yet the Word of God teaches that as Christians, you and I can see the invisible. How does that happen? What are some things that you and I can see that would be classified as invisible? As we study that tonight, we'll be looking at a few passages, a few verses of Scripture, so we'll certainly use one of them in 2 Corinthians 4, though that won't be the first one that we'll consider. First of all, how about a warning, also taken from the Word of God itself? For you see, the devil himself knows very well what this business of seeing what's invisible he understands very clearly, and he often uses a powerful temptation along with it. Let's develop it like this. I've entitled it, The Natural Order. It is typically the case, isn't it, that we believe what we see. And in many instances, if we're not able to see something, then we do not believe it. Many in the human family fall into that category unless they're able to touch it or taste it or see it or hear it or feel it, they will have no interest in believing it. The devil has frequently used that. And might we start in John chapter 20, verses 25 to 29. Although two thoughts out of that so readily come to our mind, don't you and I remember the scene regarding Thomas? 
our Savior had already been crucified. He had already, in fact, been resurrected. And as He assembled with the disciples, you may remember that Thomas wasn't among them. And then they shared with Thomas the exciting news. The Lord has met with us. And with great excitement and eagerness, we noticed that Thomas did not respond the way you and I might expect. For he said, unless I put my fingers into the print of the nails, and unless I see the fact of his sight, I will not believe. Thomas had to see. You may remember that Jesus, not many verses later, pronounced a blessing. Thomas you, in fact, have seen, and that has led to your belief. But didn't Jesus say, Blessed are they which do not see and yet believe? There's something to be noted very powerfully about the capability of seeing what's invisible. And yet, those that are Christians are blessed so wonderfully and described in that way. You'll notice the second point. If you and I are restricted only to what we could see with this physical eye, there is a very serious consideration, a very great danger. The Apostle John put it like this, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. If you and I then look only on what we can see, if that is the boundary beyond which we are unwilling to go, John says we are not to give the fullness of our love to that. But you'll notice very carefully, the Bible is quick to tell us that even though we don't put the fullness of our confidence, the absolute fullness of our assurance in this world and all that comes with it, we certainly do appreciate it. In 1 Peter 3 verse 10, didn't the Apostle Peter say, He that will love life and see good days. I believe many of us in this room, we understand what it's like to appreciate the blessing of God on a daily basis. Good health, a good family. The understanding of the means whereby we can provide for ourselves and our family, we understand those things are from God. But our vision had better go beyond that. Our vision had better extend to a far distant extent beyond it. Although it's a powerful thing to appreciate it, and the Bible often admonishes us to think with care about it. What about seeing the invisible? That's what comes up next. There are several verses, and we shall begin with this one. Seeing the invisible. First of all, what about the things of God and the things that associate with Him and to Him. Romans chapter 1 is where we shall visit first. Beginning in the 19th verse of that chapter, Romans 1, beginning in verse 19. Paul, as he wrote to the church in Rome, he set before them the powerful reality of the God of heaven. And although they were, of course, in a world that was very Gentile in its thrust and often idolatrous in its character, God set before them the marvelous matter of the great and almighty and awesome God of heaven. He did that, as you and I noticed very carefully, in some ways that stand not only directly opposed to those of His day, but what about to our own? There are those who will absolutely deny the existence of God. They will make the unashamed claim that there isn't enough evidence to, to conclude there's a God. 
they will claim that there simply is not sufficient evidence to draw an absolute conclusion. And therefore, the best they can say is, I just don't know. I've listed for your initial thought. I've used the word skeptic because that's typically the word utilized to describe an individual in this category. Out to the right, I've listed maybe a name with which you're familiar. The Cosmos program that aired on PBS and is still to this day the most watched PBS program ever. Carl Sagan was its primary author. Carl Sagan is one of the most well-known scientists of the 1900s. Astronomer, astrophysicist, one who has lectured widely both in academic circles and to, to, to the public at large, setting before the case of skepticism. There's not enough evidence, so he'd say, to claim there's a God. What about seeing the invisible? Carl Sagan had as good eyesight as you or me, but he claimed he couldn't see God. I hope you and I have better eyesight than that. I would like to share with you a quote from Carl Sagan. The great Carl Sagan said that extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. God is probably the most extraordinary claim humans have come up with. As such, the kind and amount of evidence must be on par with this claim. The sort of evidence that would convince me would have to be huge in scope and magnitude to the point that all living human beings would experience it. Every single one of them, so that no fraud, so that to avoid frauds, hallucinations, and delusions, it must be predicted and announced before it happens to the smallest details. None of the retrofitting or vague psychic claims that we're used to. It must be so spectacular that a hoax would simply be out of the question. That is the basic theoretical underpinning on what evidence should look like. Practically, it might go something like this. These are the words of Carl Sagan. On November the 1st, 2008, at exactly 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, every human being will gain the ability to teleport himself anywhere in the world. Such ability will last for one hour until 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, at which time it will go away. Please make sure to teleport back before 4 p.m. Or, according to Carl Sagan, maybe it'd go like this. On November the 1st, 2008, at exactly 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, all water in the world, including oceans, seas, rivers, streams, tap water, bottled water, rain, and so forth, will turn into chocolate milk. This will last for one full hour until 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, at which time the chocolate milk will go back to whatever it was before the transformation. According to Carl Sagan, that's what he would want to be true to convince him that there's a God. Were it not our desire to remain decent and order, I think it'd be appropriate to laugh. It's tragic, isn't it? To think that someone of his intellect, someone with his capabilities would desire something like that to convict him, con to convince him that there's a God. In Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, Paul had something to say in a direct matter correspondent to this I've just read to you. But listen to how timeless it is. Paul on that occasion wrote these words. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, 
being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Carl Sagan claimed that he wasn't able to see God. There wasn't enough evidence. And yet Paul has overwhelmingly made this point. Would you revisit a few of the affirmations of verse 20 with me? The invisible things of Him. Who's the Him? That's a pronoun referring to God. The invisible things of Him, Paul says, are clearly seen. Talk about the vision of a Christian. There we have it. These things of God are clearly seen, but he goes on to say, they are understood by the things that are made. The Greek word that Paul used there carries with it the thought of being absolutely crystal in its perception. It's like seeing through a piece of glass. The evidence for God is so abundant, it ought to be no harder to conclude that there's a God than it is to look through a clear piece of glass. That's what Paul said. The evidence is so overwhelming to those that are willing to see, to those that are willing to look for it, to those that are willing to appreciate the presence of what it is that's before them. Not only that, notice how the verse ends. It says, even His eternal power and Godhead. That word Godhead has reference to His deity, His divinity. Paul said, even that is so crystal and abundantly clear, so much so that they are without excuse. With all due respect, Carl Sagan has no excuse. And all of those like him, they have no excuse. Paul said, it's absolutely clear. You and I as Christians can thus easily see what Carl Sagan's unwilling to confess or admit. We have the crystal clear vision of appreciating the existence of God and all that associates to Him. Maybe as we come to the bottom of that slide, and of course at this point one could make reference to entire scientific books as evidence of what I'm about to say. Science has no creative capacity at all. None. Chemistry, oceanography, astronomy, physics, biology, you name it. They can't create anything. And yet this world is all about us and so too is the universe and all the intricacies that go with it. Where did it come from? There isn't a single viable explanation other than the fact that a superhuman intelligence fashioned it. You and I would readily call Him God as he put into place things like cell replication. Biologists have studied fantastically for decades about the intricacies of how cells multiply and, of course, how the makings of the human being come about as they are. The cells in your body and mind, it's a fantastic thing to consider. Heart cells, after all, are very different than cells in the lung. How in the world did they know to come up to be the way they are? When a baby grows... The heart cells know to make themselves to be what they need to be. The cells in the brain, though, are very different. How in the world did it come about that way? It's because God fashioned it so. To anyone willing to see, doesn't that present clear evidence to the fact that there is a marvelous designer? If we and I were to consider but perhaps the basics for a moment of gravity, I would ask you to consider... You and I live in a realm to where we often appreciate you drop something, it falls downward. You can imagine the fantastic character of trying then to imagine, explain that. 
physicists have now for several hundred years presented explanations of what you and I would call gravity. Things seem to drop as if there's a force acting on them, but I don't see anything. There's no rope, there's no string, there's no cable, there's nothing I see pulling the object downward, but there is something we call gravity. What holds the earth in its motion around the sun? There's no string, there's no rope tying the earth to the sun, but yet it always moves around the sun in this orbit we call the elliptical character of earth's motion. You can only imagine then as the time came when human beings as astronauts went off into space and turned cameras around and looked back to the earth and there's nothing holding it up. The earth isn't sitting on a foundation of rock or stone or marble or anything else. It's just floating in space. All along, Job had put it like this in Job 26, verse number 7. God hung the earth on nothing. How did Job know that? He lived millennia before the telescope was ever invented. He lived millennia before there were explanations due to Isaac Newton and others about gravity. How did he know? He knew because God knew and God told him. Job 26, verse 7. As you and I think about all those things, doesn't it lead us to be able with clear vision to appreciate the grandeur and greatness of God because the universe is a testimony to His action? In Job 38 and following, we remember that this very matter is what the God of heaven utilized as evidence for His very existence. After Job had his questions and his uncertainties, we remember that beginning in chapter 38 of that book, God told Job, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job, where were you when I caused the stars to sing in the morning? Job, where were you when the paths through the oceans were developed and seen? And one by one, all these questions were asked that relate to things physical by enlarging character. Job didn't have the answers. But every one of them were evidence to the fact of the God who did cause it to be that way. One more time, aren't you thankful that you have vision far better than any superhero? Vision in which you can see the invisible. What many like Carl Sagan would say, not enough evidence for God, you and I can see Him so clearly. You and I can see Him without any hesitation, any problem at all. For we know and we trust that He's the only explanation for these things that you and I appreciate about us. Maybe one last thing. Doesn't this remind you of Moses? In Hebrews 11, verse 27, in the midst of that great honor roll of faith, whereas Moses is lifted up before us as, of course, one who acted by faith, we do read in that particular verse, verse 27, by faith, Moses... And although many things about his life you and I would readily recollect, on that occasion it says he forsook Egypt. Moses had all the opportunities for greatness and grandeur in Egypt. After all, he had been raised in the palace. His mother, if you please, or the one that took care of him, was the very daughter of Pharaoh, the leader of the entire nation. The text says Moses forsook all of that, and he did so because of faith. And not only that, it says, as the verse closes, he endured those things with which he was faced, and he did so 
as though he were able to see the invisible. Why did Moses reject all of the training in Egypt? Why did he reject the opportunity he had to rise to prominence in Egypt? He did so because he could see God. He knew the things of which God had made possible, and he knew the promises and rewards to the faithful. And Moses wanted to be on the side of the faithful. What about you and me? Despite the things about us, we too want to see what's the invisible. We want to see God. Don't you look forward to one day being able to see Him face to face? So far, our lesson has brought us to appreciate seeing the invisible as it relates to God. But let's go a step further. What about Jesus Himself, the second member of the Godhead? I would develop this one with you in the following way. You and I know exceedingly well that Jesus did live here in the flesh for a while. He was born of the virgin. He, in fact, grew up in the city of Nazareth. And we understand He lived here for roughly a third of a century in the flesh. But the time came that wicked and evil people put Him to death. They crucified Him. However, He was resurrected on the third day. Following that, we remember not many days later, He ascended to the Father, and hence He is not in the flesh here on earth at this moment. In Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, the picturesque scene of His ascension is given to us. As the apostles were watching intently, He began to rise into the air, and soon He was no longer visible to them. It is with that in mind, you and I would quickly note this. Though we don't see Jesus in the flesh any longer, we love Him. That's the very statement that Peter made in 1 Peter 1.8. Though we see Him not, we love Him. Peter based many thoughts in the remaining verses in that chapter on the reality of this one who is the very anchor of our faith. The very one through whom we are able to appreciate a great deal of things that the physical world doesn't appreciate. We love Him. Maybe that love leads us to note this. Hebrews 2 verse 9 makes a rather monumental statement. Would you listen to it as we consider what the inspired writer said? But we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with the glory and honor that He, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. But we see Jesus. You and I, even though we live this many centuries, this side of His life in the flesh, we nonetheless can see indeed that He suffered, just as the text affirms, and furthermore, that our vision of Him is so clear. You and I, one more time, able to see the invisible. We see Jesus. The inspired writer used a present tense verb. He did not say, in the past tense we saw Him. We today are able to see Him. Aren't you thankful that you have that kind of vision as a Christian? Aren't you thankful that when you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, you can see Him hanging on that cross. You can see the blood oozing from His side and dripping onto the ground beneath. You can see it as if you'd been there in many ways. That kind of thought is a constant reminder, isn't it, about the marvelous eyesight that a Christian does have. You may notice as we develop that further, there are many attributes of the Master you and I can so readily see. 
In Revelation 17, 14, He is King of kings and Lord of lords. Notice it didn't say He was or He will be. He is today. Can you picture the Master sitting on the throne at the right hand of the Father? Can you picture Him there reigning as King of kings? I'm sure we can because we've got eyesight that permits it. Not only that, He is the captain of our salvation. Hebrews 2 verse 10. How thankful we are for a captain who knows the way. How thankful we are for one who has not only dealt with and emerged victorious over all the matters of the life. He is able to give us the instruction whereby we can safeguardedly maneuver our way through it with care. He is our captain and king, but He's our redeemer. In 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, we were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with incorruptible things, namely the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you see Him? Sure you can. Because as you and I readily understand, we can see what is invisible. You'll notice as we close that list, how often does our mind revisit the matters of the Old Testament and appreciate the honor that went with the high priesthood and all the efforts and the work that accompanied it? And yet Jesus Christ is our high priest, Hebrews 8 verse 1. Inasmuch as He officiates in that fashion, He is the mediator between us and God. 1 Timothy 2 verse 5. Can you see Him? Sure we can. You and I know exceedingly well the magnitude of that blessing that's ours to see the Master. One final thought. He is our Lord. When we think about the word Lord, we think about the servant-master relationship. He is our Master. And you and I, as His faithful and humble servant, are happy to acquiesce to all of the demands He places upon us. We love Him. He's our King, our Redeemer, our High Priest, our Master. Sure enough, you and I can appreciate, isn't it true, that those things I read to you a moment ago, I'm sure as I read them, you probably were already thinking about several occurrences in the Bible. Carl Sagan said that for him to be convinced, he would want all the water in the world turned to chocolate milk. Really? In Exodus chapter 7, we remember that there came a moment in the land of Egypt when all the water was turned to blood. The Nile River, every water pot that had water in it suddenly became full not of water but of blood. The fish all died. There was a terrible stench over the land. Question, was that enough to convince the people of Egypt that the God of heaven had done it? It wasn't. Pharaoh wasn't convinced on that occasion. Remember, even magicians were able to do something that in fact caused him to doubt that it was of God. You can rest assured that if all the water in the world were to be turned to chocolate milk, that wouldn't be enough to convince people there's a God. For those who are skeptic in their mind, they would have some kind of explanation. They'd believe an alien would do it before they'd believe God did it. We know that's the way it is. He also said that he would need to be able to see people teleport themselves at 3 o'clock on a certain day, but it would have to stop at 4 o'clock. Really? That would be enough to convince people there's a God. That wouldn't even come close. 
think about the aspect of prophecy. He said that their particular event would need to take place by virtue of being predicted, and then it would need to come to pass. Hundreds of times that's exactly what has happened. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies about something that was going to happen, and it did. Minutely, exactly, thoroughly, and expressly. That hadn't been enough to convince him before he died. He died, by the way, in 1996. Today, these fanciful magic things he has described, that'd be nothing more than a clown show. That wouldn't convince anybody there's a God. You may remember that in Luke chapter 16, there was a rich man in Lazarus. And on that occasion, you may remember that this rich man pleaded, I've got five brothers on earth. Go back and tell them about this place. All of us remember very well what was said. If one even rose from the dead, that wouldn't be enough to convince them. They've got Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. This book is God's presentation, and those who have the eyesight to appreciate it, it speaks volumes, literally, about the nature of God and about the nature of Christ Jesus our Lord. At the very bottom of that slide, I would simply close it by asking all of us to think about this. Carl Sagan was a skeptic in life. He didn't believe there was a God. Think about for a moment what his lot was one microsecond after he died. One microsecond, one split second after he died. I wonder if he believed then. I wonder then if he was convinced that all the things he once had thought were now wrong. I'm sure it's exactly what he thought, but it was too late to change then. Too late to acknowledge God. Too late to acknowledge Jesus. Too late to acknowledge the greatness of the gospel plan of salvation. It was too late. You see, his eyesight wasn't good enough. How about one last part of our lesson tonight? We've talked about being able to see the invisible, namely God, and we've talked about being able to appreciate seeing the invisible, namely Jesus. What about this fourth point? We each would readily utilize a particular word, I'm sure, to categorize and classify much of what we've described. What about the essence of faith? I suspect that there's a verse in Hebrews 11 that you've already considered in your mind even before I got to it. You just got there before I did. But maybe this is the right time to ask us to reconsider it. It's the opening verse of Hebrews 11. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Being able to see the Master, being able to see God, these things you and I have discussed tonight, we understand the critical reality of faith in order to enable that vision to be able to see what's invisible. You will notice that in this particular passage, I've asked you to note the definition. The actual Greek words in the closing part of that verse carry with it the assurance of things not seen. May you and I never forget what eyesight as Christians we have. We can see what's invisible. As you and I develop these last points on that slide, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 4 and listen to how Paul develops it in a rather remarkable way. I'll begin reading in verse number 17 of chapter number 4 and we'll read on into chapter number 5, several verses therein. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, 
worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Among other things, we immediately notice as Christians, our vision is so keen that we can even see what's eternal. Paul said, we don't look on what's temporal. We don't look on what we see. We look on what we don't see. Isn't that an interesting turn of word? We look on what we don't see. But yet Paul said that as we do that, we're able to give careful eyesight to what's eternal. What do you mean, Paul? Chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Who among us has ever seen heaven in the flesh? Not a one of us. However, have you seen it through the eye of faith? Don't you long to be there? Aren't you making sure and certain preparation in this life so that your calling and election is sure? Second Peter 1 verse 10. Can't you in, in many ways see those golden streets? That tree of life that blooms every month of the year? Revelation 22 verses 2 and 3. Can't you see this place where there's no pain and sorrow and separation? Sure you can. Think again about how great your eyesight as a Christian is. Back to verse number 1 of chapter 5. We know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, after you die, you're going to be given another body when that morning of resurrection comes. What's it going to be like? I don't know all the details. I do know this. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 and following give us some specifics about it. But we are sure, it's as though even now we can appreciate we're going to be like Him, like Jesus. 1 John 3, verses 2 and 3. Think again about what you're able to see. Let's go to verse 2. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Don't you yearn for a place where there's no more death? A place where there's immortality? You can see it, you know, and so too can I, through the eye of faith as we appreciate the greatness of this passage. Let's read on. Now he that hath wrought for us, or wrought us for the selfsame thing, is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. There we notice this. Don't you long through this eye of faith to be able to be with Him. In that great morning of resurrection, to hear Him say, Well done, thy good and faithful servant, and to see the face of the one who died for you. Talk about vision. Talk about better than 2020 vision. Let's read on. Wherefore we labor, verse 9, that whether present or absent we may be accepted of Him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. 
Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. Verse number 10 had put it like this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Can you see the judgment scene? Those faithful to the Lord on the right. Those unfaithful and disobedient on the left. And he addresses them one at a time, pronouncing upon one, enter into the joys of the Lord. And can you imagine the smiles on the faces? Heaven forevermore. But can you imagine the terror filling the hearts of those on the left? To hear him say, you've been disobedient. You weren't faithful to me. I don't know you. It would be impossible, it seems to me, to describe the chill that would move up one's spine on that occasion. To know that all hope is lost. No longer an opportunity. You can see the judgment day, can't you? So too can I. Because of the vivid descriptions that faith allows us to understand. Tonight, we've studied about seeing the invisible. As you close that slide, it prepares us for only the last one. We've studied these amazing things, and so indeed we walk by faith. If we're pleasing to God, we must. And because of that, we can see what ultimately is invisible. Things like Jesus and heaven, the day of judgment and the surrounding matters that go with it. I'd like to close the lesson then by asking, what about your vision in mind tonight? If you're basing your life only on what you can see in this flesh, that's not going to do. That will not be enough. That'll not be sufficient. You need to base it on what's not seen. God and Jesus, the reality of the gospel plan of salvation, the thoroughness of the judgment. If tonight, as we close that lesson, our desire to see the invisible, I hope that we each can say we're following these things we've studied. We're able to see this which is invisible. But if that's not characteristic of someone in the audience... Please, with urgency, seriously consider your situation. Where will you be at judgment if it happens tonight? What will be the lot of your eternity if you should pass from this life tonight? Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, to quote Proverbs 27.1. If we could be of assistance to anyone this evening, maybe as a person who would like to become a Christian for the first time, You'd like to be able to see the invisible. You can do it, you know. If we could help you do that tonight, notice it's not our commandment, it's the Lord's. You must believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized. And if we could help you, we'd be happy to do it. If you have become a Christian, though, but you've lost your way, your vision has become clouded, your vision has become far too nearsighted, you need to fix it. You need to go to the great physician. You need to allow Him to correct your vision so you can see the invisible. If tonight we could pray to God for forgiveness of your sins known publicly, let us know that. Just as we did this morning, we'd be happy to pray for you. If we could assist you in either of these ways tonight, don't delay, but why not come now while together we stand and while we sing.